This is hell. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell and what the future was supposed to be for those imprisoned at the Guantanamo detention facility was the closure of the prison, the end of the detainees' alleged abuse at Gitmo, the end of them being imprisoned at Guantanamo. Four months after the attacks of 9-11, the Guantanamo Bay detention camp opened on January 11th, 2002. This year marks its 21st year in operation, meaning that nobody under 21 years old has known a world where the military of the United States of America did not operate an offshore prison that has been condemned since its very opening by organizations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the Red Cross, the European Union, and the Organization of American States over of, of American States over its indefinite detention of prisoners without trial, alleged Geneva Conventions and human rights violations, including torture. The Center for Constitutional Rights also condemned what came to be known as Gitmo for violating the Due Process Clause of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments of the United States Constitution. Since its very beginning, the facility has been understood by law, law scholars within the United States as unconstitutional and globally as inhumane and an offense to human rights norms. Despite every president vowing to close it since its opening, that is, every president except for President Trump, who, like 2012 Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney, actually vowed to expand the pri- uh, prison, no president has actually succeeded in shutting down the site yet. So why is it still in operation? Who is still imprisoned at Gitmo? What are the chances that the unconstitutional and inhumane detention facility, which exists above and outside both U.S. and international laws, will ever close? In a few minutes, we will have the return of national security scholar and author Karen J. Greenberg, who recently posted the Tom Dispatch article, Closing Guantanamo? Yes, a snail's pace, but a pace. Claudia Bennett and Ava Gagliardi contributed research for this article. Karen is a Tom Dispatch regular and the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law. Her most recent book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump, which was published in 2021 and is now out in paperback. Karen's earlier books include 2016's Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State, and The Least Worst Place, Guantanamo's First 100 Days. She has also edited many volumes, including 2019's Reimagining the National Security State, Liberalism on the Brink, 2008's The Enemy Combatant Papers, American Justice, The Courts, and the War on Terror, as well as The Torture Papers, The Road to Abu Ghraib, and The Torture Debate in America, both of which came out in 2005. She is editor-in-chief of the Center on National Security Sufan Group Morning Brief, which focuses on national security as it intersects with the rule of law, civil liberties, and human rights. She is also editor-in-chief at the Aeon Cyber Brief, a weekly roundup of cyber news that highlights developments across the digital domain, including cybersecurity law and policy, the technology industry, and cryptocurrency. She is a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations, an International Studies Fellow at New America, and a visiting fellow at the Sufan Center. Follow her on Twitter at Karen Greenberg, followed by the number three, Karen Greenberg 3. Find out more about her at uh, 
let's see if I can get this one right. Center on or Center on National Security.org, Center on National Security.org, which I've mistyped here. Karen has been re- appearing on This Is How since way back in 2007. In fact, this week on our special Patreon podcast, we will be playing an interview with Karen from 2009, which we will be telling you about a little bit later on today's show. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, any plans for your weekend? I am off to the Driftless area for some camping and hiking and general enjoying the outdoors. So around Michigan City? Uh, no, uh, southwest Wisconsin. So it's this kind of... Different Driftless areas. Yeah, oh, you have a Driftless one in... Uh, uh, in uh, far like northeast or northwest uh, Indiana. Oh, yeah, with all the dunes. Right, right. by Exactly, yeah. exactly. Now, this one is the unglaciated area of mostly southeast, southwest Wisconsin, but also southeast Minnesota, uh, northeast Iowa. And what is a driftless Iowa. area, anyway? Uh, it's a area that was never frozen over glaciated during the last ice age, so it's full of ravines and a lot of interesting topography and a karst landscape full of caves and whatnot. Very cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I just heard about the Driftless stuff a few years ago when I was visiting uh, southwestern Michigan, and all of the magazines are, uh, that say on them, welcome to the Driftless area. I didn't know they called themselves that over yeah, there. That's cool. So get this, my plans for the weekend uh, are to sleep uh, by myself. awesome. <laughs> not by myself. Well, by yourself is, is a bummer. Yeah, yeah. but whatever. Uh, cook for myself. Do everything I can as my unwife, who is, will be out of town, is going to be taking care of her dad, who is home recuperating after a recent emergency room visit due to chest pains. That means I will likely be spending the entire weekend cleaning the house. So when she returns next weekend, I will at least have done that for her after her doing so much for everybody else. And it's kind of like a, an anniversary gift to her. So when I'm not cleaning, I will be doing work on the radio that I can't get done when I am very happily distracted by her. So my plan is... a. Lonely and very productive weekend cleaning the house. Doesn't sound all that exciting. Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what is your favorite misleading and false binary? What is your favorite misleading and false binary? We will share your question from hell answers as posted at our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group and any stragglers from Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Discord, Uh, We'll be wrapping up all those after our talk with Karen on the current state of the international law-breaking prison at Guantanamo. We got an email from someone going by the name Neural Damage. Neural Damage writes, First of all, what an incredible program. I recently stumbled upon This Is Hell and have been proselytizing it to my friends. Which leads to the issue. The podcast is extremely quiet for some reason. I subscribe to dozens of podcasts, but this is the only one that's inaudible unless I crank the volume all the way up. I use pocket casts, if that matters, and I think it does. While I'm willing to do this, the people to whom I've recommended the show are not that keen on it for the very understandable reason that any notifications they receive while listening to your show are suddenly at a maximum value, volume, which would be deafening. Help me help you. Thanks, signed Neural Damage. And I hope that doesn't have anything to do with the issue of your podcast volume. So thank you, Neural Damage. We truly appreciate your attempts at converting your friends into listeners of the show. And while we appreciate you calling the show incredible, 
I hope your friends find it very credible. As for volume, we have listeners send an email like this maybe once a year, once every other year. When we ask other listeners if they're having the same problem, they either say they're not having an issue or that all podcasts are a bit quiet and need to be turned up. However, the producers and engineers on our show, who know far more about this than I do, tell us that the problem is on the users and not ours. That said, we are going to look into this again because being completely listener-supported, we need all the listeners we can get. So if anyone is having a problem with the audio levels, please tell us, whether it's with the podcast or the live stream or the show being aired on WNUR here in Chicago, WLPN on Chicago's south side, CKUW in Winnipeg, Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, or on BewareTheRadio.com in the UK. If you're having any kind of audio problems, please get in contact with us and tell us what they are. And if you're not having any issues, tell us that too. This seems to be an ongoing problem, and not only with our show. If you use a streaming video service, you know how much you have to crank those up. Then whenever you get an alert or whatever you are watching ends, you are suddenly deafened by the volume. And we don't want that to happen to you. Again, we need listeners. We don't want to deafen anybody. If you are having any kind of volume issues with the show, please contact us and we'll see if we can rectify your problem. Little addendum to that, Chuck. Um, listeners, we always love hearing um, how you're hearing the show, but please, it's very helpful to reference the specific episode you're having trouble with because sometimes it's unique to that file. Oh. So sweet, yes. Yeah. Tell, tell us what episode you are here that you are listening to. If it sounds good, if it sounds bad, we want your input. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Tweet at us via x at thisishellradio. Or you can post at our Discord or Patreon pages. Or you can post at our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page. And if you do post anywhere, we'll likely share your thoughts with everyone else. Coming up... The detention facility at Guantanamo is still open. Will shares some of your answers to our most recent question from hell. We'll tell you what happened during our, uh, we'll tell you what's happening on uh, this week's Patreon podcast, which will be available at patreon.com slash this is hell on Friday morning. And we'll tell you what's happening next week on the show. And during a very special Thursday edition, historian Dr. Seb Vupper has a new past inside the present when Seb provides the historic context from the past so we can have a better understanding of our present. Will, what is Seb talking about this week? Seb closes the book on the Chinese dynastic era and shares some difficulties that Chinese history presents. News that scares the news. This is hell. And apparently any news at all about what is happening at Gitmo scares the news. After all, when was the last time you heard anything about what is happening at the detention facility? Nearly 800 alleged terrorists have been held at Gitmo over its 21-plus years in operation, most held for long periods without ever being charged, let alone having a trial, and who were tortured in what are known as secret CIA black sites, making their testimony and any confession inadmissible in court. The number still in prison is now down to 30, but the arguably unconstitutional and inhumane detention center still thrives. 
here to tell us why it does and the future of the dozens who still remain. National security scholar and author Karen J. Greenberg recently posted the Tom Dispatch article, Closing Guantanamo? Yes. A snail's pace, but a pace. Claudia Bennett and Ava Gagliardi also contributed research for this article. You can follow Karen on Twitter at Karen Greenberg, followed by the number three. Find out more about her at Center for Center on nationalsecurity.org. And Karen has been appearing on This Is Hell since 2007, and we will be playing one of the interviews we did with her back in 2009 on this week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Karen. Thank you so much for having me back, Chuck. Thank you so much for being on. You start by mentioning that for 18 years, you've been writing articles for Tom Dispatch on the never-ending story of the Guantanamo Bay Detention Facility. I think the first time you were on was back in September 2007 to talk about another Tom Dispatch article. That one had a headline, Can Guantanamo Be Closed? Earlier uh, that year, in February, you posted an article with the ominous headline, Guantanamo Forever. Are you surprised in any way that Guantanamo is still open, or did you believe once that it was opened, it might never close. You know, I'm the kind of person who always tries to see things with some kind of hopeful future. Um, so it, I, I mean, as you say, I've written so many articles about how this seems to be the forever prison with the forever prisoners. But um, I really didn't, don't think I thought it would last this long. And there have been moments of you know, hopefulness along the way. Remember that when President Obama took office, one of his very first acts as president was to say he was going to close Guantanamo within a year. <laughs> um, that did not happen. And in fact, a number of things were put in place that spoke to the future of Guantanamo for however long it was going to go on. And so, um, so I'm now that there's only 30 people there and we can talk about, you know, what the different scenarios for closing it that each category has um, of detainee. But um, I'm I'm very worried about whether or not it will close. And even though I said at a snail's pace, uh, again, I'm looking for signs that show there's some kind of momentum coming. But um, I can't say that I can really see that it's going to close. Um, but I'm hoping it does. Former President Trump, as you note in your article, is the only president since Gitmo opened that had no intention to close Guantanamo. In 2012, Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney not only said he wanted to keep it open, but wanted to expand it. Despite President Bush opening Guantanamo, you mentioned that he still wanted to have it closed. How much was the inability of President Obama to close Guantanamo, how much was that promise that he broke at the beginning of his administration? How much was that driven by opposition from the Republican Party? So often you'll hear Democrats, supporters of President Obama say he couldn't get certain things done simply because of Republican opposition. Was his inability to close Guantanamo due to Republican op opposition more than anything else? I wouldn't say more than anything else, but I would say that uh, President Obama did not anticipate the kind of backlash he would get from the opposition, from Republicans about closing it. But that is not the only reason that it didn't close. And so, I mean, there are two things I can point to just, you know, off the top of my head. One is that 
the complications of closing this facility include not only a tremendous amount of negotiating in terms of countries that will take the detainees, um, not only a way to resolve the military commission's cases, which is what my recent piece for Tom Dispatch was about. Um, so that's, that's one piece. It's just incredibly complex. You know, it's once you break it, meaning break a system that's legal and just and offers protections to prisoners and the way international domestic and military law is supposed to ensure, trying to move beyond it turns out to be incredibly difficult. So that's the number one complexity that you have to recognize. It's not just about Republican opposition. The second piece of this that's important is that during the Obama years, one of the things that happened was a Congress passing a section of the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, which is the Appropriations Act, um, which which uh, funds the military, funds the Pentagon, et cetera, which put, added a clause that we had not had before, which said that no detainee, under any circumstances, by the way, medical, trial, uh, incarceration, no detainee from Guantanamo could come to the United States. And every year since then, they have passed that that part of the NDAA again. And so that makes it you know, doubly hard because there's no way to bring them here for trial. There's no way to bring them here should they get convicted. Um, there's it, it narrows the possibilities uh, for closure. It also gives countries around the world who we might want to um, convince to take one of uh, these detainees um, to say, well, what do you mean? Why should we take them? You're not taking them. And so it's it's it, it wasn't just Republican opposition, but it certainly made it way harder than um, than he thought it was going to be. I want to say something else. I'm not so sure. I mean, I've never <clears throat> asked him or talked to him that he wasn't convinced that um, that maybe it shouldn't be closed. That there were that there were reasons that um, some national security experts said about individuals who we just couldn't let out because they were too dangerous. But these are the forever prisoners we're talking about; those that were never charged, but we couldn't charge them. And I'm not maybe he was convinced of it. Um, remember that Obama, um, his Obama administration passed the Congress under him passed the Military Commissions Act of 2009, replacing the one that George Bush had put in place in 2006 upon the insistence of the Supreme Court. You know, if they were going to try people, they had to actually have a congressionally authorized military commission system. And um, and but Obama, you know, reinstitutionalized the military commissions after putting them on pause for um, a, a workshop, a commission that he had uh, appointed to deal with this issue and report back to him. So, um, so I think it's a little bit too simplistic to just blame it on Republican opposition. I think there are a lot of things going on. And then there's one final thing that a, a lot of um, experts and pundits often bring in, which is that. He wanted to pass the um, he wanted to to do the health um, agenda that he had in mind. And as a result, he wanted to put all the eggs in that basket. And that's where his focus was. And that's what he accomplished. And so that was another reason. So to the best of your knowledge, has there been any change in the way people here in the United States feel about terror suspects being transferred to mainland U.S. prisons within their community. Is that fear still very palpable? Or are people starting to realize that that might be a necessity if we are ever going to close down Gitmo? 
Um, I think it's a, a moot conversation. I think that uh, Biden, like his predecessors, um, like Obama, decided that, you know, basically it's just not worth the fight. We're not going to have it. Um, I think that people, and for the most part, Guantanamo is not on the list of the 10 most important items that Congress has to deal with. I really wonder if you took a poll around the United States and said, what's Guantanamo? What goes on there? I don't know how many people would actually know. You know, the students coming to college right now, um, Guantanamo's been there, as as you referred to in your open remarks, since they were born um, or before they were born. And so it's just become something, it's not a high, a high it's not got a lot of uh, focus on it, despite those of us who just can't stop focusing on it. What does that reveal to you about the way in which the war on terror or the forever war is seen by the public? I mean, because that's kind of frightening that we have forgotten about this detention facility where people still are being held in a way that has been seen as inhumane, unconstitutional, violating of international laws and norms. What does that say to you about the state of the forever war, the forever prison when we've simply just forgotten about it. Right. What does it really say about how some things history just leaves behind, right? Um, so there are a couple things to say on that front. One, the war on terror era that started with 9-11 uh, is a essentially over. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't terrorist threats out, out there. Um, Al-Qaeda and ISIS are still in the news. Um, Al-Shabaab is in the news much these days. Um, there's many terrorist organizations, jihadist terrorist organizations that are on the radar of uh, national security experts around the world. But the war on terror as we knew it, which was um, it focused on bin Laden and that a generation of Al-Qaeda is largely is is ended. And I would say that the final point on it was the withdrawal of American troops from uh, Afghanistan by uh, President Biden. Um, but that doesn't really the answer the question of, you know, what does this mean? So an important thing happened a couple of months ago, which was that a UN special rapporteur, Fianola de Iolian, um, went to Guantanamo. And for the first time ever, and they demanded it, and she got access to anybody she wanted access to, those in charge of Guantanamo, those running Guantanamo, um, the detainees themselves, the families of 9-11 victims, um, et cetera. And it, what she issued a report, which isn't that long, and which I urge everyone to read, and maybe you could link it to your podcast somehow. Um, it's, it's an amazing report because it focuses on exactly what you talked about, the cruel and inhuman and continuing cruel and inhuman, um, con inhumane conditions that are um, best the best words to describe what's happening at Guantanamo. But she took it in some new directions. And one of the new directions she took it to, and I think this gets to your point about the American public, was to the families of the victims of 9-11. And her point ultimately in this score was that by not resolving the military commissions part of this, by not trying the people that have at least been charged um, with crimes of terrorism, and particularly the five who have been charged with the 9-11 attacks in conjunction with the 9-11 attacks, they're just not just denying justice uh, to th those who um, have been charged, but they're denying justice to the families of the victims who have yet to have closure in the case. And that one of the 
things that trials are intended to do is to provide that closure. Here's what happened. Here's who responsible. Here's how we know. Here's the evidence. And because that has not happened, that among the cruel treatment and, and unjust treatment of what has happened by the existence of Guantanamo for all this time is, in fact, its deleterious impact on the families of those victims, which I think is an amazingly important thing. And the, the rest of the report is also very important about not about the um, treatment of the detainees at Guantanamo and the fact that they're kept there in this you know, forever limbo um, and the way they're treated, but also the detainees who have been released and how the conditions of their release, which were supposed to guarantee that they would not be abused, mistreated, um, and, and, and treated unjustly, um, uh, would that they that wouldn't happen to them when they were released, and in fact, it's happened to many of them. So it's a very, very interesting in terms of when you think about what really the legacy of Guantanamo is. It's much larger even than just the prison itself. That was the next question I was going to ask you: Was do we know what has happened to those detainees who have been transferred to countries outside of the United States? To what degree do we have any kind of oversight pro program to make certain that they are treated justly? Apparently, we do not really have that, but we do have a number of detainees and groups, particularly in England, for example, the UK, that are representing these uh, individuals in, just in terms of the public sphere and the public discourse. But people who have been sent to countries around the world who can't get visas to visit their families, others who have been re-imprisoned in the countries or sent to other countries and been re-imprisoned and tortured, it runs the gamut. Some individuals who are living um, living their lives, having children, having jobs, um, but it runs the gamut. And and to my knowledge, there's no you know official oversight group that has asks for accountability about this. It's just amazing to me whenever there's a lack of oversight in something that's so important and uh, you know very critical to people's lives. You write that there are still. 30 detainees at Guantanamo. 16 of them have been deemed no longer threats to the United States and cleared for release, but arrangements have yet to be made to transfer them to another country. What is meant by no longer being a threat? Were they ever deemed to be a threat? They determined what yes. that threat was, and then they determined that threat was no longer there. Is that the process it went through, or was it that they were never really a threat? Well, those are two different questions, actually. The question is, you know, whether they were a threat and whether these parole style boards deemed them a threat. So what happened, what has happened, what has happened over the course of Guantanamo, um, and particularly as we know it in its recent incarnation, is the establishment of these periodic review boards that are parole style boards that look at each individual case um, over time and say, is this, do we deem this person to continue to be a threat? That's that's how they think of it, um, to the United States. And what's happened in these um, 16 cases that have now been cleared for release is, um, no, we no longer deem them a threat. Yes, in the past, they had been, some of them had been deemed a threat or too dangerous to release, meaning that they could, fears were they would, you know, hook up with others and re-engage or engage for the first time, maybe, um, in the fight um, uh, in, in terrorism, et cetera. But there's also another side of that, which is when they do release them, the idea is that they have to go to a country that will, um, will treat them fairly, um, but will also 
make it their business to make sure they're not reengaging in terrorism. So it's a very complicated um, set of conditions once they're cleared uh, for release. But you know, now nearly everyone who's been there at Guantanamo has been cleared for release. More than 500 were released by uh, President Bush. Almost 200 were released by President Obama, largely in the last 18 months of his presidency. Um, and now, you know, I think there were 40 there when Biden took over, and now there are 30. So we're getting there. And that's that was my idea about a snail's place, that pace, this recognition that um, that really this process has to take place. And, and look, Biden has not made the big official position of, you know, a special envoy to close Guantanamo the way Obama did a very high profile position. Um, but he has made somebody, uh, Tita Cadeno, head of this effort. Um, and we'll see what happens. But it's been way too slow uh, in recent days. Um, and so that's that category. Then there are the three who have not been cleared for release, which is problematic. And we'll see where that goes. Um, and then there are the 11 that are in the military commissions, um, one of whom has been convicted and is appealing his part of his conviction. Um, and then the, um, the others who are awaiting uh, trial. And so or are in trial. And so um, it's kind of an interesting thing. It's hard to imagine if you've been watching this for all these years, the trials really taking place. It, it's actually, it's impossible to imagine. If you're somebody like me, who's written and edited so many books on uh, that deal with Guantanamo, that deal with torture, it is hard to imagine no matter how many times they rewrite um, the norms around the military commissions, how they're ever gonna have a trial in which um, the evidence is gained largely from torture. It's just impossible to imagine. So now we're in the process, the country's in the process of supposedly seeing if they can arrange some plea deals with the detainees. But again, that's going all too slowly as well. And we'll get to those plea deals in a moment. But in your opinion, is the US any more or less safe from those released becoming a security threat by transferring them not to a U.S. prison, but sending them overseas. Do you think whether they are in a U.S. prison or whether they are overseas has any bearing on them possibly becoming a threat to the United States in the future? You mean the people who are, in, if they get convicted, the people who are in the military commissions, because the other ones aren't going to prison. The ones that the you know the ones that have been released aren't, for the most part, going to any prisons. They're just going to another country. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah, so, which yeah, yeah that makes sense because uh, that's the point that I was trying to get to. Is first of all, when it comes to people being concerned about security threats here in the United States, of people going from Gitmo to a prison here in the United States, and then being sent overseas, if that has any bearing on their security. But also, I'm glad that you brought this up. When they are released, they are not going to prisons overseas. They're not going to detention centers overseas. No, does that for the make most part, no. right? Does that make them? any more or less a security threat to the United States again. It gets it's kind of back to the same framing, does it? So there's been a lot of work done um, or some work done on recidivism, right? And part of it takes a very partisan um, dimension, which is, you know, um, oh, they're going to be recidivists and here's, here's uh, the evidence of it. The actual um, uh, the actual documentary evidence that we have about recidivism under Obama went down to some very, very small fraction. And I'm not sure it's any different than are there threats of terrorism that we need to worry about? 
And what I would say to that is that, look, 9-11, for whatever reasons, and we can have another podcast on that, caught the United States off guard. And in a lot of ways, it was an intelligence failure. Um, it was a, for many agencies, not just one, it was an international affairs uh, uh, fault. It was many things that were going, it was an internal, you know, chain of command, who was telling who what in the United States fault, whatever it was. The United States has spent 20 years plus an extraordinary amount of money ramping up its military um, facilities and capacity, its intelligence services, its ability to understand uh, terrorism worldwide and to interact with other uh, law enforcement and intelligence services around the world. We're much stronger than we were on 9-11 in theory on that in that way. And so my answer to that is we should just use our intelligence services and our, our other ways of understanding threats like we always have. And you just can't keep people in prison, especially those that you haven't even tr charged, tried or convicted when you don't when there's no reason. You can't just say, yeah, you might, we might think you're a threat, so here you go. You're, that That is the antithesis of how we think about democracy and certainly the antithesis of how we think about what it means to have um, a judicial system and a rule of law. We've known this since Guantanamo opened, and we're still dealing with that problem. You write of the difficulties with releasing detainees. By far the biggest obstacle remains the fact that the detainees were horrifically tortured at those CIA black sites. Defense attorneys have persistently insisted that evidence derived under torture should be inadmissible in the proceedings in accordance with the law. If that has been proven time and time again, does that mean that the law that we actually do have when it comes to torture is very strict and very strong, that it makes it so anyone who admits guilt while being tortured cannot be prosecuted for the alleged crimes or their confession. Does that give you at least some solace that these torture restrictions actually ended up defending the people who were being tortured? Well, that's what it's starting to look like now, and that's what we why we got to plea deals. But you know, the defense hasn't held up in in it's still twenty years later. And something very important happened recently along these lines, which was in the case of somebody who's at Guantanamo um, on the Shiri, who was um, is um, charged in the bombing of the USS Cole, which happened in the summer of two thousand and killed, I think, seventeen service persons. Um, that his, it's interesting because his lawyers have been claiming, as other lawyers, that you can't introduce tortured evidence at trial. We understand that, but then they argued that the FBI interrogations that followed, that were at Guantanamo, for example, that were these FBI teams were known as clean teams that tried to get these confessions and this evidence and this information without torture, um, that the the prosecutors wanted to be able to introduce the clean team information at trial. And the uh, Nashri's um, um, lawyers were like, no, the clean team evidence is also derived from torture because once you've been treated that way, when you're asked these questions again, you, you are not free of what torture did for you. And a judge recently ruled in a very powerful way um, that, in fact, that is the case, that there was no way that Mr. Anlashiri could have been in a room with 
interrogators, no matter how friendly they were, no matter how much they shared treats and sandwiches, which is part of what was argued, no matter how relaxed they seemed, there was no way that he didn't know that waiting outside the door, if he didn't say the things he said again, that they would not come in and, and beat him and abuse him and torture him again. It was a very powerful um, uh, ruling and um, and really very, I think, definitive in terms of what's going to go happen, happen going forward at Guantanamo, which is these people can't be tried. They can't be tried. Um, and actually, there's a couple reasons. One is the evidence against them is tainted by torture. Second reason is, as we recently saw in the 9-11 case, one of the uh, defend one of the five defendants, um, uh, Ramzi bin al-Sheib, was separated from the case, formally separated from the case of the other four, because he is so psychologically damaged that it amounts to psychosis and cannot stand trial. He's not capable of it. And so this is, they've been arguing this for a while. He finally got separated from the trial itself, which means that the, the other four, the case of the other four can go forward, hopefully to some kind of plea deals. You write that in this instance of inching forward, the commissions have recently addressed the person you were just talking about, the case of Ramzi Ben Al-Sheib, one of the 9-11 defendants. He has displayed severe signs of mental instability, including delusions and hallucinations owing to his brutal treatment in CIA custody. He's convinced, for instance, that CIA agents are still pumping unnerving noises and vibrations into the cell, causing sleep deprivation. His inability to talk about much else has stymied the attempts of his lawyers to uh, prepare him for future hearings. Last June 6th, in fact, a panel of psychiatrists and forensic experts declared him, as you were saying, unfit to stand trial, given his post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome and his psychotic delusions. Based on the report, Commission's Judge Matthew McCall agreed and on September 21st, 2023, severed him from the trial. So do we know how much Ramzi bin Al-Sheib uh, is actually linked to 9-11. Is there any indication that his current mental state was the result of particularly harsh uh, treatment and torture because his connections to 9-11 were far from being direct and could be described as tangential or peripheral at best? It was, was his treatment, does that have any reflection upon if he was or was not guilty of a crime? No, I mean, I think that I, 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 it's hard to answer that question. There's a lot of questions embedded in it. But I think the 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 idea of the you know, you're really focusing on something like you're sort of asking, did they torture him because they thought he did 9-11? They tortured, you know, his attack to the attacks. I think they tortured these individuals. Let's think about why. One of the reasons was um the way a certain kind of anger, right? But that's not the only reason. They tortured these individuals because they didn't have, they didn't know what happened and because they didn't know what was going to happen next. And which was a tremendous failure on the part of uh, the government, the intelligence services, the security apparatus. And so their idea was that if they take the gloves off, as uh, Vice President Dick Cheney said, um, do whatever you have to do to get this information. And it, any rational, lawful, but even um, any person who actually wanted to get the information would not have gone down that road. And one of the things, the, the main takeaway from the Senate intelligence report um, that came out in 2014 was th that Dianne Feinstein um, led 
um, that her office led, one of the things that came out was that the torture did not give reliable evidence. That in fact, it was, you know, not something that you could use, not just at trial, but that you couldn't use in terms of strategic or tactical um, operations in order to make us safer, in order to, you know, combat our enemies, in order to um, counter the threat. So it, it, it's, it's devastating in terms of that um, result about what it was. Look, it was, it was by far the wrong road to go down in innumerable ways. And, you know, the fact that uh, Guantanamo is still open is the, um, is the legacy of it. And you point out that, in fact, their torture induced severe psychological instability and often physical incapacity not to mention instances of distrust of their lawyers, have made it difficult to hold hearings of any sort. As a result, after so many years, the cases remain in the throes of pretrial hearings and jury selection is still far off. So no imagined benefit ever came from the torture program that was somehow believed by its supporters to be a way to find those responsible for 9-11 and holding them accountable. As an interrogation program, it failed, and as a way to hold those accountable... That failed. Do you think the CIA, the Department of Justice, who wrote up the so-called torture memo, memo, or the U.S. government generally, has learned their lesson that torture is not only morally and ethically horrible, that it is inhumane, but also that nothing comes from it? And possibly more important, does the U.S. public know the torture program was a failure? Wow. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. There have been some... Um, very powerful uh, movies made about the torture program, not just the report, which is about the creation of the Feinstein report, what they learned and the politics of getting it all together and getting some of it at least into the public arena. Um, there's also um, The Forever Prisoner, Alex Gibney's film about one of the people who remains at Guantanamo, not cleared for release, not charged, uh, Abu Zubaydah. Um, we have, so there's, and there have been uh, many others as well, or, or some others as well. So I would say some of the public knows um, there, but I would say largely, it's not just that, that they don't know that it didn't work. I think it's also that the recognition of the damage that it's done, because one of the damaging things that's been done really does have to do with the 9-11 trial and not just what the special rapporteur report said about, you know, um, the victims' families not having their trial, not having their day in court, not having that kind of resolution um, and closure. But it's also what it's done in terms of the capacity, the, the reputation of the court system in the United States, of the federal courts. And so, I mean, why can't the federal courts, many ask, try these individuals? And the answer is largely and mostly because of torture. They were tortured and you can't have that evidence in federal court. But it is, if you think about it, it is such a diminution of the capacity of the courts and, and what they can do. And so Eric Holder, when he um, was attorney general, decided that it really was imperative to try these cases in the United States as terrorism cases had always been tried in the United States prior to 9-11 and in fact after 9-11. And so he brought one detainee, this is before the ban on detainees coming to the United States and one of the things that made inspired that to happen. Um, he, he brought one of the detainees, um, Ahmed Gailani was the man's name, a Tanzanian, 
who had been picked up um, and brought to Guantanamo, uh, brought to black sites and then brought to Guantanamo. And he was um, he was tried in New York. Um, he brought him here in 2009. The trial played out over the course of the next year. And he was charged with 285 counts, many of which were the deaths of people charged in in uh, connection with the bombings in 1998 of two U.S. embassies, one in Kenya, one in Tanzania. He, and um, he was acquitted on all but one of the charges and um, at a trial in the Southern District of New York in Manhattan. And the way the country, and I mean national security officials, um, many in the legal community and others interpreted this was that he almost was acquitted. And, and many of the headlines say, said it like that. Um, and it sort of sent a shockwave through the system that we cannot try these individuals in the United States. Just to, as a footnote here, Mr. Gailani was sentenced to life in prison for that one count. Um, but it was the death knell to the um, trials being held in the United States. So um, that's that's another one of the casualties, I think, of Guantanamo, which is the way in which it pulled the rug out from under the rather stellar reputation of the federal courts to be able to try these kinds of cases. And whether it's Guantanamo or the Patriot Act or the Department of Homeland Security or the launching of the War on Terror, which became a forever war, these were all decisions that were made during a time of intense collective pain following 9-11. Israel insists that the attack by Hamas two weeks ago was their 9-11, as both the attack on the U.S. by al-Qaeda and the attack on Israel by Hamas are considered and reported to be complete surprises. In the wake of 9-11, with many Americans suffering with the pain from that day, the U.S. launched that war on terror, the forever war. How dangerous is it to take actions like Guantanamo Bay or launch wars like the War on Terror during times of collective pain? Do you think that we might get to a point where we just pause for a moment after collective pain and think about what we're doing instead of rushing into applying vengeance as justice? You know, I think that that I think there's a time frame in which to think about this which is, yes, we would like cooler, wiser heads to prevail at times of intense pain and suffering. I'm not sure that that is really doable. It's very, very, very hard. I think I think you have to do your best to, to do that and to help your leaders be that way. What I do think in the case of the war on terror is that whatever happened in those first months of shock and, and, and just, you know, confusion um, all around from top levels to just regular people on the streets. I do think that there should have been a moment, maybe even a year later, maybe less than a year later, uh, of a, a reset, which is, whoa, um, I'm, that is not who we are. That is not who we want to be. We wish we hadn't done those things. Um, you know, written memos in the, uh, in the Department of Justice that Thought that said that torture, that these techniques of torture were legal, um, that, just to name one thing, um, that there needed to be, that's when wiser heads, if they couldn't prevail in the beginning, there needs to be this sort of sense that after X amount of days or X 
matter months, it, just stop and think about it. Is this who you want to be? Wh what can we do to recapture um, our humanity, our decency, our sense of justice? And and that did not happen um, after 9-11. And um, so that's what I, you know, to, to give you room for if if need be and if wiser heads don't prevail, there still needs to be a, a stopping point. So what do you think is the, as you call it, irrevocable damage that the torture program has done to the U.S. system of justice? I think it's 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 made it seem like we don't have a court system that can try the most egregious things that could happen to society. And we have a system that cannot reach out to the people who are the, the victims' families and tell them that we know how to adjudicate and address um, how they lost their loved ones. And I think we are seeing it right now the courts that seem to be very fragile. We're seeing this in terms of the kinds of debates that are going over on the court's legitimacy when it comes, for example, to the trials of the former president um, and in many other ways. I think it, it had a very long-lasting uh, damage on the reputations of the courts. I think Eric Holder was right. They should have been, those who should have been tried should have uh, been brought here. It would not have um, changed the fact that those who weren't gonna be tried should have been released. That's how we work as a system. If you can't, and, and, you know, if you can either hold them as prisoners of war, which these were never considered to be, they were called enemy combatants outside the laws that existed, um, and that we should honor our principles. And I know it's hard, but once you start to say, well, in this case, we don't do it, in this case, we don't do it, well, the law seemed good, but we didn't know we were going to be scared, or we didn't know we were going to be attacked, or we didn't know this possibility. That's not what the law is meant to be. It's not meant to be when it's convenient. It's meant to be this is who we want to be as as a country, as a world, whatever. Um, and and I think that the harm to the Department of Justice was and to the courts um, has been um, very um, dire, and that we're seeing it now in real time in a very different context. And how much damage does that do overall to democracy? <laughs> I think that a judicial system is very important to the notion of democracy, partly because you can hold people accountable at all different levels for all different kinds of things. One of the things that this is another piece of the, the courts and accountability is that the, in terms of the war on terror, whether it was people who lied to the U.S. government, whether it was accountability for the torture program, um, or a variety of other things in terms of the powers invoked in the wake um, of 9-11, of um, that the, the inability to adhere and to our customary prosecution of those who decide to break the law at any level um, has to be addressed. And we chose um, with successive presidencies not to um, hold those people accountable who said, you know what? The, the law, the, the rule of law just doesn't apply at certain times. We're not going to go down that road. Um, and I think that that is, over the long term, extremely harmful to uh, democracy. We have been speaking with national security scholar and author Karen J. Greenberg. She recently posted the Tom Dispatch article, Closing Guantanamo. Yes, a snail's pace, but a pace. Claudia Bennett and Ava Gagliardi, uh, 
contributed research for this article. You can follow Karen on Twitter at Karen Greenberg, followed by the number three. Find out more about her at the Center at Center on National Security.org. Karen has been appearing on This Is Hell since 2007, and we will be playing an interview that we did with her in 2009 on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell this week. One last question for you, Karen. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. How much fear do you have that Guantanamo will inspire other nations to have torture programs or has it legitimized their torture programs because the U.S. does it, so why don't we? How much fear do you have that this is going to inspire other actions like this and legitimize other actions like this by other state actors? I think it it goes to the latter, which is there are countries that torture um, as as without you know that torture and it's considered how how they go about what they do and we know those countries and i think that the idea that they can say to us is who why would you tell us that we have to follow human rights uh, codes and how would you tell us that we have to follow um the law international law when you've broken the law and in many ways you continue to break the law by having guantanamo open and I think that and and that you tortured people and there wasn't really the kind of accountability that you want to impose on us. So I think that's the real legacy of it is what it means for our ability to try to make things better around the world when we've violated them so egregiously at home without demanding or asking for this kind of accountability at home. And it just reminds me of the Indian nationalists who are now saying that the Sikh gentleman who, a Canadian Sikh gentleman who was somebody who was fighting for Sikh independence in India and was assassinated, uh, Indian nationalists are now saying that that was inspired by the U.S. targeted assassination program during the war on terror, the beginning of the war on terror. So yeah, I'm just very concerned about what our legacy is going to be from the war on terror. Thank you so much, Karen, for being on our show again. I really appreciate it. Again, National Security Scholar and author Karen J. J. Greenberg recently posted the Tom Dispatch article, Closing Guantanamo. Yes, at a snail's pace, but a pace. Uh, Her most recent book is Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump, and it has published in uh, 2021, and it's now in paperback. Thank you so much for being on our show, Karen. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. Manufacturing dissent. Since 1996, this is hell. And yet again, we had as a guest someone with a very dissenting opinion from that of the press, the public and politicians. And that is close Guantanamo already. The mainstream establishment media has forgotten all about Gitmo. But guests like Karen Greenberg have not. And neither have we. If you appreciate the fact that our guests have not forgotten about the inhumane treatment of Muslims following 9-11 and how it continues to this day, show your support for completely commercial-free This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to opinions and analysis and perspectives like that of Karen that you won't hear anywhere else, and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including nearly 10 years of free shows that you can listen to right now 
at thisishell.com. We do not receive any grant money. We do not take any commercial money. We do, we're not even a not-for-profit. We don't make enough profits to be a not-for-profit. And we do all that to make certain that you understand we have no conflicts of interest whatsoever. Show your appreciation for all of that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell this Friday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and, that's right, clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can support This Is Hell. And somebody has to because you know that to corporate and public establishment media, this is hell. Tune into this week's Patreon podcast as I celebrate 20 years of living in this neighborhood where we are doing this show right now, the West Ridge neighborhood on Chicago's far north side, a neighborhood like no other in the city or, for that matter, in the United States of America as the census tract just north of where I'm sitting right now, the census tract within which I live is the most diverse according to the 2020 census. The neighborhood has gone through some changes over those 20 years, but no, what never changes is it's always ch- changing. Welcome, welcoming in the next group of people pushed for their, from their homes all over the world. The latest arrivals include Sudanese, Somalis, Uyghur, Rohingya, Kazakhs, Venezuelans, and many, many more. Take a tour of West Ridge in the past 20 years with me on Patreon tomorrow, Friday at patreon.com slash thisishell. Following my look back at 20 years in the neighborhood, we are playing an interview with today's guest, Karen Greenberg, that we did shortly after the beginning of President Barack Obama's administration in May of 2009, when Karen had just posted the story, Kiss the Era of Human Rights Goodbye, What President Trump Willed to Obama, and the world. But the only way you can hear all of that, and at times nostalgic, at times violent, at times gross, walk down memory lane with God knows what getting stuck to my feet in a 14-year-old discussion of the end of human rights is by going to patreon.com slash thisishell. And if you do so, you and become a subscriber, you also get a special secret code word that gives you a discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. As a Patreon patron, you can ask me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, your very own question from hell for me. Our Patreon page is also a great way to stay on top of everything going on behind the scenes with exclusive content only for Patreon subscribers. You get all of that at patreon.com slash thisishell as well as showing your support for a completely independent, commercial free, so non-profit we cannot afford to be a not-for-profit. This is hell. Will, what is this week's question from hell and how are our listeners responding at the hellhole? This week's question from hell is what's your favorite false and misleading binary? Over at the hellhole, we have a lot of responses, mm-hmm. which is, uh, seems to be the case most of the time. Yes, um, the only way that Facebook lets people communicate with each uh, other is yeah. through a group. Yeah, I think the private groups aren't subject to the same filter or whatever. Yeah. All right. Uh, starting off is Ronaldo, our very own Ronaldo Magaldi. Uh, who replies, the second example given in the image makes no sense. Genuine concern for animal welfare merely begins not with killing and eating them. 
It's the obvious first step, the lowest bar. But anyway, my favorite false binary is capitalist versus Marxist, as if human imagination were insufficient to conceive of any other options. <laughs> That's pretty good. That is pretty good. Uh, Allison H. replies, pro-life and pro-choice. Nick E. responds, socks, cubs, lives are at stake. <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. Oh, man. Uh, Jack B. plus belief in God. Really like a lot of the concepts in Hasadism, while also rejecting the rigidity of the movement, especially regarding LGBT people, view of women, etc., etc. Pete V. replies, life or death? How about zombies or vampires? <laughs> okay. Wojciech R. replies, plain versus sugar cone. <laughs> uh, KW replies, love or hate. As if our only choices are to spew violence of many varieties or love everybody. Arg, no. We don't even have to like somebody or group in order to promote justice work that advances well-being for all. Um, Nick E. Great answer, by the way. Yeah, excellent answer. Nick E. replies, here's a good source with well over 100 fallacies described. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing some of these are are a great bullshit detector. Oh, yeah, I I love the logical fallacies lists. I uh, have my students read all of them before they write essays. Oh, really? Yeah, just because there's some, you know, sometimes someone stumbles on the circular argument and then they think, oh, this is invincible, you know, because it proves itself. Yeah, and it never does. No. Well, I mean, (laughs) it can. It just, yeah, it can't sit in scrutiny. Right. Uh, David R. replies, Republican or Democrat? Sari G replies, nature versus nurture. Uh, Kofi V replies, there are only three kinds of people, those who can count and those who can't. Oh, <laughs> That's man. a great one. Let's, uh, That's a great a one. In that yeah, one. Exactly. <laughs> Kobe S <laughs> says, love it or leave it. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, it is a good one. Uh, Kevin W replies, we've got both kinds of music here, country and western. <laughs> Brothers, shout out. Yes. I hate Illinois Nazis, by the way. Louis <laughs> uh, D replies If I care about my dick and I can't care about anyone's <laughs> pussy. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I might edit well, that well, one. Maybe. 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 <laughs> <laughs> by uh, the way, beware the radio will be getting that. Oh, yeah. We will. Care. They can play that yeah. stuff up there. <laughs> exactly. In the UK, they don't care. Um, Laura S. replies, If I don't unilaterally support anything Biden does or doesn't do, or I criticize him or any Democrat for that matter, I must want Trump to win. (laughs) Yes. And then in parentheses, insert Hillary's name for Biden in 2016 too. It never ends. As long as Trump is around and threatening to run. Hear, hear. Um, No whack wolf. Live and laugh. Followed by a skull. Peter M. Criticize Israel equals anti-Semitic supporter of Hamas. Julie M. Replies, again, Cubs versus Sox. A victory for either accursed team is a once-a-century affair and a good excuse for citywide celebration. Good point. Also, I am 
biosexual. It's okay to be biosexual. I mean, uh, All right. guessing you're also a fan of the Red Sox? <laughs> sure. Uh, Mike W. Mayonnaise or Miracle Whip? <laughs> Disgusting. Um, and then Mitchell S. Stephen Colbert said this once. Transformers, robots or cars? We're at war. Pick a side. <laughs> so that's the whole. All right. And uh, if there are any more stragglers over Patreon, Twitter, Facebook, wherever, uh, share those with us after Seb. You, you can it. leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can post it on our Discord or at our Patreon page or at at our Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page, or you can email it to us right now at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Seb Vooper and the past inside the present. Even Napoleon had his Watergate. This is Hell and Now, the return of Dr. Sebastian Vooper, a historian himself, and historian himself, who gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present in his segment, The Past Inside the Present. Take it away, Sebastian. He would if he could, but I'm not seeing him here. Oh, really? And uh, I haven't heard from him on any of my other communications either, so... Hmm... Hopefully he's all right. Well, let's all hope he's all right, and let's wrap up the show then, and maybe yeah. we can get him to do the segment we teased on next week's show. So, live right. from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want that is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page, tweet it at us, email it to us, post it on our Patreon page, post it at Discord community, or you can email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer right now. Will, please remind us one more time, what is this week's question from Hell, and do we have any more answers? What is your favorite misleading and false binary? We do have a few more answers uh, over on Discord. Mark A replies, solids or stripes in pool. <laughs> Good stuff. Kim G replies, to be or not to be. Okay. Um, Twitter is a complete ghost town mm-hmm. thanks to our shadow ban. Yes. And uh, one more straggler on Patreon will uh, wrap up our question from Hell Answers with Craig J, who replies... Inflammable versus flammable. <laughs> That's a very important binary. Yeah. No one way or the other on it, certain <laughs> occasions. Uh-huh. But then he follow they follow up. And that is a fault fa- and that it is a false binary of the third kind. I.e., it appears to be a binary, but is actually a unity. It is. Yes, That's the it problem is. with inflammable and flammable. <laughs> it means the same damn thing. Sure does. So the answers I liked the most were uh, Kaz saying there are only two kinds of people in this world. Uh, Neil C. saying your money or your life. By the way, Neil C., thank you very much for the very, very kind support that you gave to This Is Hell a few weeks ago. Adi saying you can't you can't have your cake and eat it too. Uh, Essential saying the two-parent family. 
<laughs> Old Grouch voting for the lesser of two evils. Mason W. with George Bush or with the terrorists. Public Universal Comrade 101001101. A simpler name, please, saying to be or not to be while I live like a zombie. I did like Craig J saying inflammable or flammable. Yes. Mark A saying Salazar stripes and pool. Sheldon saying you are either for democracy and thus must vote for the Democratic Party or you are for the Republicans and therefore you are fascist. Wojciech saying stand or kneel. Fabio saying top or bottom. This is switch phobic language. <laughs> and I won't stand by it or take this sitting down. Which is really, really great. <laughs> Ray O saying this is hell or this is not hell. Uh, Allison H pro life, pro choice. Uh, I did like Pete's answer. Life or Beth, or life or death. How about zombies or <laughs> vampires? By the way, tell your uh, wife that I said life or Beth. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> will do. And uh, also, guess who's here? Do we have Sebastian Fupper? No, we do have him. Yeah. All right, well, let's finish this up, then we'll get to Sebastian. Uh, So, Kay, I did like Kay saying love or hate. Nick, there's a good source with, here's a good source with well over 100 fallacies described, and he sends us a a link to deanramser.files.wordpress.com. Sarah G saying nature, nurture, Kofi, there are only three kinds of people, those who can count and those who can't. Kobe saying, love it or leave it, no whack wolf, live and laugh. Uh, Yeah, those are basically my favorites. We'll announce who uh, the winner is after Sebastian Vupper and the past inside the present. Take it away, Sebastian. The past inside the present. Okay, let's let's hope this thing is on. Uh, yeah, hi. Sorry, my uh, my my Zoom was installing updates, and I was just uh, screaming at the screen uh, that it should go on before, and then you just anyway. Um, Wait, did also that I got work? S- did screaming at your screen work? Because I I try that sometimes, and it doesn't. Uh, I'm I'm not sure that had much of an impact. Also, <laughs> I was stung by a wasp this morning before starting to work for some reason, uh, because it somehow there was a wasp on, in my lap, and I put my hand in my lap, and suddenly there's a there's a sting sensation and now i have a wasp sting in the palm of my hand which makes you know working uh as a writer really um fun anyway <clears throat> well good luck uh, to you that's neat yeah uh, word of advice for getting zoom to work uh here percussive maintenance is key mm-hmm. strike yeah. it as hard yeah. as you can and hope for the best work god damn it um like the soviets did anyway uh <clears throat> yeah uh on, on with the show uh yeah i don't know yet if i want to do a future segment that deals with the history of the war in israel uh i'm not doing it today anyway uh, i'm not sure if i have much to add that other people who know more about the issue haven't said better than i could do it already uh, and given where i come from and who my ancestors are i have some difficulty with the whole issue but increasingly i'm coming around to a position Position, uh, where I look at who has more power in the situation and who has the higher kill ratio. And that paints a pretty clear picture for me. But anyway, that's just an aside and has absolutely nothing to do with what I wanted to talk about today. Before the break, um, 
uh, we talked about the history of China in the 19th century, uh, the so-called century of humiliation, and how uh, Qing Dynasty China was repeatedly outclassed by European powers in warfare. I had initially planned on talking about the deposition of the last emperor and the creation of the Republic of China. I will briefly go into that before talking about issues in writing and talking about Chinese history. So let's get to it. Uh, the Xuantong Emperor was chosen by Empress Dower Dowager Cixi as the successor to the Guangxu Emperor. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing these things terribly. Please forgive me. Uh, people of China. Uh, less than two weeks after the Xuantong Emperor's passing in November 1907, the Xuantong Emperor had been uh, his successor's half-uncle. Um, no, wait a minute. The Guangxu Emperor had been the... <laughs> These emperors are really difficult to keep apart if you don't know Chinese very well. Anyway, we know the Xuantong Emperor by his personal name, Puyi, under which he published his famous autobiography, The Last Manchu, which served as the basis for Bernardo Bertolucci's movie, The Last Emperor. Puyi was two years old when he received the Mandate of Heaven in December of 1908. The toddler emperor was essentially abducted by a royal procession of officials and eunuchs from uh, the mansion where he lived with his parents, literally got dragged kicking and screaming into the Forbidden City. The officials at least had the courtesy to allow the two-year-old's wet nurse to come along with them. After Dowager Empress Cixi's death, Puyi's father, Prince Chun, became Prince Regent of China. Puyi, however, became a became spoiled by the absolute power uh, that emperorship granted him. He uh, turned into a cruel and petty child who made a sport of flogging his underlings for the slightest transgressions, since nobody could challenge any decision the child emperor made. This life in the palace, however, did not last long. In October 1911, political upheaval once again shook China. An armed rebellion in Wuhan uh, was the latest in a series of such uprisings that had occurred all throughout the first decade of the 1900s. But this time, the uprisings spread and did not end. The Qing court tried to hold on to power through rapid reforms, turning the absolute monarchy into a constitutional one in November of 1911. This did not dispel the uprising, though. The revolutionary forces captured Nanjing on December 2nd, uh, 1911. The revolutionaries then declared a new Chinese republic and elected revolutionary leader Sun Yat-sen president of the provisional government on December 29. And then January 1st, 1912 was to be the first day of the Republic of China. More provinces fell to the revolutionaries as the year progressed and it quickly became clear that the Qing could no longer hold on to power. The Republican politicians drafted an edict of abdication and delivered it to the Forbidden City, the palace complex of the Chinese emperors in Beijing, on January 20th, 1912. After internal deliberation, uh, Puyi then abdicated officially on February 3rd, 1912. He was six years old and thus ended over two millennia of dynastic China and monarchical rule. Puyi and the remnants of the Qing court were to remain in the Forbidden City as highly titled custodians under the Articles of Favorable Treatment of the Great Qing Emperor after his abdication. It's quite the mouthful. 
The Qing kept on living there until 1924. In the meantime, more chaos swept across China. The president of the republic himself tried to install himself as the first emperor of a new dynasty with Pui's blessing, but that failed due to a lack of popular support. The early republican period of China was extremely messy, with coups following uprisings and brief imperial restorations. This time, between 1916 and 1924, is referred to as the warlords era due to this country almost breaking up in internal strife between military leaders that had been part of the army who then erected their own little regional uh, uh, fiefdoms. Is it fiefdoms or fiefdoms? I'm, I'm only ever seeing this word in writing and now, now I'm doubting myself. Anyway, uh, the foreigners still held some power in a few provinces, but most of the humiliation now came from ongoing internal strife. And then in the 1920s and 30s, China again was humiliated in wars, one with Soviet Russia, and then Imperial Japan began to really flex its muscles, wresting Manchuria out of China for good in 1931, which served as a long prelude to the Japanese invasion of China and the beginning of the second Sino-Japanese War in 1937, which then again segued into World War II. At the end of all that, so the country devastated by a century of humiliation, by decades of internal strife and bloody wars. For good measure, China then again descended into internal conflict with the Chinese Civil War, which culminated with Mao Zedong's Communist Party yeeting the Chinese nationalists out of the country and declaring the People's Republic of China we know and love today. Which wasn't the most stable place in the world, but compared with what had happened in the preceding century, seemed peaceful and calm in comparison. And this is where I will leave it. Mao and the rise of communist China deserve its own multi-week treatment. Uh, now let me pivot to something else entirely. I mean, not entirely. Exploring Chinese history today is not an easy task. I mean, it is and it is not. Here's an anecdote. A few years ago, I realized that I knew very little about the history of China. So I decided to get a few good books on the topic. And since I wanted to do my due diligence, I thought I should try and read some Chinese historians first since one should always try to get the history of a country from historians of that country and of that culture and so on. So I started to ask around uh, historians I knew and was referred to a couple of sinologists. And they basically told me not to bother. The massive brain drain that China had experienced after Mao's Cultural Revolution left a massive gap in the number and quality of histories produced in China. Worse, most Chinese histories are written to be in line with party doctrine. I mean, not surprising, really, but, well, that's what it is. So there was little to get from there. And instead of Chinese history written uh, by Chinese, I ended up with the excellent China a history by uh, John Kiei, as well as uh, with Julia Lovell's The Great Wall, China Against the World, 1000 BC to 2000 AD. Um, both, are, both these are uh, British historians and both are great reads if you want to polish up on your Chinese history. And let me stress this again, Chinese history is absolutely fascinating, but it comes with some pitfalls and difficulties for a Westerner, at least for me, the Chinese names were very difficult to correctly remember and associate, as uh, we just witnessed. The historians are consulted, admitted that this is a frequent issue when writing Chinese history for a Western audience, because keep, keeping people apart that are named in a language that is so different from one's own is a legit difficulty. Kie writes, 
quote, confronted with an array of Chinese proper names in their Romanized spellings, English speakers experience a recognition problem, like a selective form of dyslexia that makes the names all seem the same, unquote. And even though I speak more than one language and I have dabbled in learning Mandarin, I too have quite the difficulties remembering and identifying Chinese names correctly. Some issues too come from how to render Chinese language into a Romanized transcription. And this has for a long time not been a standardized process. And that combined with Chinese rulers often having several different names, a personal name, names that only family could use, dynastic names, and then also posthumous names make studying Chinese history quite the challenge. The Chinese language uses logograms, not alphabetic characters, so in pronunciation of words varies by dialect. It's really not an easy task, and I have mad respect for my sinologist historian colleagues. Another significant problem in writing Chinese history is well, party doctrine. Kie relates difficulties that archaeologists in China faced in the mid to late 20th century. One example he brings was that archaeologists found evidence that horses had been introduced to China in prehistoric times by people coming in from the Northeast, from Europe and Central Asia. This, however, contradicted the official stance of party-approved history. The Chinese people have always had horses, was the party stance. The archaeological evidence, thus, was evident wrong. This strange, stubborn, absolutist thinking is found across party-approved histories. I found an officially party-written history of China in a, in a, a used bookstore that had been produced as a handout to foreign visitor, visitors for the Beijing Olympics in 2008. And that book contained many head-scratchers, some of which I attributed to bad translations, but it also contained statements like humans have always lived in China, which reflects difficulties of exploring pre prehistoric Chinese history by archaeologists. Because humans have always lived in China is an official stance, but the archaeological evidence obviously contradicts this since Chinese people must have come from somewhere at some point in the deep past. Another issue is that many older Chinese hist historical sources are very thorough with names, places, and dates, but a lot of times that is often uh, all they provide. The Chinese have long since perfected the practice of bureaucratic bookkeeping. And as with all primary sources, they have to be enjoyed with care. Translating them is a difficult and kind of boring task, uh, sinologists that I consulted uh, say. But there is a lot of... Uh, but there's a lot of that kind of history out there. Uh, however, those histories are also prone to have both intentional and accidental gaps, and the accidental gaps are then brought on by lost pages and worn-out characters. But there are histories. Uh, but there are historians and sinologists who successfully tackled this massive history with millennia worth of meticulous, if dense, sources, and who managed to make all of this accessible to even the general audience. Reading Chinese history is something I found and still find immensely rewarding. There is so much going on here. There is so much drama and often at scales that dwarf much of the history of the Western world. And uh, this also provides insights into this ancient culture that is so important for us today, but which we know so little about because, because it is so distant and so different and so seemingly daunting because it's millennia long and, you know, you can have all these dynasties and emperors and all these names that, that don't mean anything to us. But it's ultimately not that different from the histories of other places and other people because, well, it's we're still all people, right? We're still all humans and it's still all history. The foreignness just makes it seem less accessible than it really is. 
And this concludes China Month. Uh, I'll return to the hell of China in World War II and beyond some later time. I mentioned to you uh, Jonathan Spence's book on China, The Search for Modern China, which I really enjoyed. But uh, I just wanted to point you to another book and listeners as well by Jonathan Spence uh, called The Question of Who. It's the story of John Hu, a lowly but devout Chinese Catholic who in 1722 accompanied a Jesuit missionary on a journey to France, a journey that ended with Hu's confinement in a lunatic asylum which is a fascinating book. And oh, so people boy. should check it out if they want to know more about China. And again, I'd suggest uh, mm -hmm. the search for modern China. What's the book that you would suggest if there's a singular book uh, for people to get started on understanding modern China? Uh, probably really John Kie, uh China, a history. I know it's, it's, it's uh, Kie is a K-E-A-Y. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, man. I really appreciate it. This has been really fascinating. I love the wrap up that you did just now about the difficulty in knowing of Chinese history, because it reminds me of kind of how our history is being erased right now. Oh, well. Go figure. All right. <laughs> till next time. See you soon. See ya. See ya. So the winner of this week's question from hell. Boy, I really liked Fabio saying top or bottom. <laughs> yeah. The switch phobic language, and I won't stand by it or take it sitting down, which is great. That again, for the, this week's question from hell, repeat it one more time, Will. This week's question from hell is what is your favorite misleading and false binary? But I got to go with Kofi V. Yeah. That's really great. There are only three kinds of people, those who can count and those who can't. Yeah. <laughs> that is absolutely it's brilliant, Kofi. So we will be contacting you shortly to ask for your mailing address and what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you would like, and we'll get it in the mail to you as soon as possible. Congratulations, Kofi. Really appreciate everybody's answers to this week's question from hell. My answer to this week's question from hell, what is your uh, favorite misleading and false binary? You're either with us or against us. I thought that was pretty simple. Not a great answer on my part, but what are you going to do? Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Will, we don't have any guests yet booked for next week. We actually did just book one. Uh, Mark Weisbrot is going to be here from the Center for Economic Policy and Research, and he's going to talk to us about the uh, election and what's happening in Ecuador. Also next week, Seb Vupper with another past inside the present. We'll have this week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi. Jeff Dorchin returns to deliver a moment of truth. A huge thank you to this week's producers, Dan Kugler, Will Ippen. Thanks to Sebastian, Ronaldo, Jeff. Thanks to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, Theron Humiston, Dan Hillen, and Pete Valavanis, just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell when I'm talking about the beautiful and ugly sides of living in the one-of-a-kind West Ridge neighborhood in Chicago and, a two, and we'll have a 2009 talk on the Bush administration killing human rights. Vote for This is Hell in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Reader's Poll at chicagoreader.com slash best under the City Life category where you can vote for This is Hell as best podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, as best radio DJ, that's chicagoreader.com slash best. Then go to City Life and vote for This Is Hell as best podcast. And me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz as best radio host. While you are there, please show your love for Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. 
While there are only two categories under City Life to vote for This Is Hell and me, best podcast and best radio DJ, respectively, there are four places, or actually there's three where you can vote for Carrie's Lounge. You can vote for Carrie's Under Food and Drink for Best Beer Garden and Under Music and Nightlife for Best Neighborhood Bar and Best Dive Bar. That's chicagoreader.com slash best. Vote under the category City Life for This Is Hell as best podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, for best radio DJ. And vote for Carrie's under food and drink for best beer garden and under the music and nightlife category for best neighborhood bar and best dive bar. Voting is only open until November 7th, so vote early, vote often for This Is Hell, Chuck Mertz, and Carrie's Lounge at chicagoreader.com slash best. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There is only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on the burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>